I mentioned this before earlier this year, but just in case you forgot or weren't aware, this is the 500th anniversary, speaking of church history, of the Protestant Reformation. That's a pretty big deal. You know, it was in 1517 that, that a German monk named Martin Luther, supposedly, you know, have, traditions have a way of, of growing over time, um, violently nailed um, his theses uh, to the door of a church in Wittenberg. And in honor of that anniversary, we mark and remember the Protestant Reformation. And we're indebted as a church to the ministry of men who were part of that. Guys like Luther or Zwingli or Calvin or Tyndale. They didn't invent the gospel. That's important to say. It's not like Christianity showed up when the Reformation happened. But they preserved the gospel and they, they protected it from corruption and distortion. And the, the heritage, the religious heritage that they passed on to us is often summarized in the form of, of what's called five solas. You may be familiar with these. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And every one of those captures a a central tenet of Christianity, of the biblical faith. But we need to think really carefully about the second of those statements. That's what I want us to do in light of the word we just heard from 1 John 3. That we're saved by faith alone. Because church, what we mean and what we don't mean by that is really critical. There's a true and biblical way of saying that we are saved by faith alone. And there is a false and unbiblical way of saying that we are saved by faith alone. So if by faith alone you mean that we are made right with God, Not on the basis of what we have done for him, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection, then you know what? You're right. (laughs) That's correct. And gloriously so, right? Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But if by faith alone you don't mean that, you mean that the only thing necessary for you to be welcomed into heaven on the final day is believing that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died to save you from your sins. If that's what you mean by faith alone, then you're terribly deceived. And if you're uncomfortable and thinking, what in the world did he just say? What has this graduate program done to Williams? (laughs) I'm glad. Because what I just said is really important. Okay, why? Because of what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, you're the son of God, you died to save us from our sins, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
What about Romans 8.13? For if you live, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What are Jesus and Paul saying in those verses, friends? Well, they're saying in, in no uncertain terms that works of obedience are necessary in order to attain the hope of heaven. You will not be saved on the final day without them. And here's what that means. Here's what that means. Whether or not you choose to obey the Lord in every area of your life could not be more important. In fact, your salvation depends on it. Why? Why do I say that? Why why can I say that that strongly? Well, here's why. Because you cannot separate faith in Christ that brings us into saving relationship with God from works of obedience that demonstrate our perseverance in that faith. Now, in fact, the means by which we persevere in the faith. I I love how, how John Calvin says this. It is therefore faith alone which justifies. And yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone, because it is constantly conjoined with light. Honestly, the main reason I wanted to preach through 1 John this year is that I have had for a couple years a concern for our church. And the concern for us, friends, has has been this, that, that in response to past errors in the realm of legalism, of trying to, what do I mean by that? Of trying to earn love and acceptance from God through obedience to God. In response to past errors in the realm of legalism, that we would turn from that and easily lose sight of the absolute necessity of obeying Jesus in every area of life. If I were to ask you, I think, whether works of obedience are important, I bet most of you in this room would say yes. If I were to ask you whether works of obedience are beneficial or it will go better with you if you are obeying God than if you are not, I think that most of you in this room would say yes. But what if I ask you, are good works absolutely necessary in order for you to attain the hope of heaven? Would you get uncomfortable? Would part of you start thinking, that doesn't sound like grace? That doesn't feel like the gospel? Well, friend, if there's something within you that that hesitates to agree with that, or, or wonders if agreeing with that statement undermines the grace of the gospel, then, then I'm going to argue this morning, and you should be questioning right now whether you really understand grace. With the gospel. Why do I say that? 
Why do I say that? And why would I argue that if when you look at your life, it would suggest that, that knowing and obeying the will of God is not particularly important to you, that, that you should wonder if you're even a Christian. Why would I say that? Well, it's because of 1 John 3 verse 10. Look at verse 10. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. In, in most areas of life, whether it's the job that you're going to work, the, the house that you're going to buy, what kind of car you're going to drive, we have all manner of choices. But when it comes to our spiritual life, when it comes to your spiritual life, which, by the way, is always connected to and reflected in every other area of your life, you have two choices. I tracked I held up earlier. There are two ways to live and no more. Two options, and they're, they're polar opposites. Either you will practice sin or you will practice righteousness. That's the choice. That's the choice. And how you make that choice determines, verse 10, whether or not you are of God. Please keep in mind the distinction I made earlier. That it is through faith alone that we come into relationship with God. Ephesians chapter 2. But that faith through which we come into relationship with God never exists alone. And if you want to have confidence of attaining the hope of heaven on that final day when you die, being welcomed into heaven, then you must, you must obey Jesus. Look at 1 John 3 verse 4. Verse 4, the apostle provides a definition of sin that I think is really helpful. Sin, he says, is what? to say at the end. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness. Why does he say that? Well, it's because he's reminding us up front that we live in a moral universe created by a moral God who's established laws that determine and distinguish what is true from what is false, what is right from what is wrong. And as human beings, we imitate God by making all kinds of laws, right? Maybe you make laws for your family, you make laws in your country, we make all kinds of laws. But, but God's law remains supreme over all our laws. Why? Because the law of God is not the product of a cultural consensus. It's a reflection of his eternal character and purity and goodness. And when we fail to reflect his character or reflect the opposite of his character in our acts, in our attitudes, in our nature, we sin. Which means that sin isn't just unfortunate or undesirable or human. It's altogether serious because it's a violation of the moral law of God. It's an act of rebellion against his divine authority. So, so where does John go with this? Where does he go with the fact, the beginning of our text this morning, that sin is lawlessness? Where does he go from there? We draws the obvious conclusion back to verse 10 
that you cannot claim to be of God or part of the kingdom of God unless you obey the laws of the king. (laughs) Unless you practice righteousness instead of practicing sin. And if you look at verse 7, there is a warning to us here, friends. Serious warning here that we are vulnerable to deception in this area. We're vulnerable to deception. What's, what's the deception? Well, in every age and every culture, there have been voices around us, even voices inside of us, that are actively working to deceive us. They're actively working right now in you, all around you, to persuade and convince you that obeying God is less than necessary. Important? Sure. Helpful? Maybe. But necessary? I don't know. Not so much. And John's a really wise pastor. And he knows that. He knows our tendency to take obeying God and make it a spiritual option. Something that falls short of what it is. An absolute necessity if you are to attain the hope of heaven. And so what does John do as a wise pastor? Well, in these verses, he gives us seven reasons why practicing righteousness is absolutely necessary. Okay? Yes, I have seven points this morning. And we're going to have to go through these very quickly. But my prayer is that as we work through those, you would see why obeying God is not optional if you're going to follow Jesus. And my prayer is that these truths would be like, hearing these things, would be like driving spiritual rebar into the concrete of the foundation of your commitment to personal holiness. And that you would see that the grace that saves us is inevitably and necessarily the same grace that sanctifies us. So why is practicing righteousness a necessary part of your salvation? Why will we not attain the hope of heaven apart from practicing righteousness? Answer number one, first, because of the sanctifying goal of the gospel. The sanctifying goal of the gospel. Okay, back in, back in chapter 2, verse 28, and, and again in chapter 3, verse 2, John explained why Christ's future return, we talked about that last week, compels us, his future return compels us to pursue holiness. But now, in chapter 3, verse 5, and again in verse 8, he makes the exact same point about Christ's first coming. He turned his attention to his second coming, now he turns our eyes to his first coming. So look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. You know, John says, You know that he, Jesus, he appeared to what? To take away sins. To take away sins. Hear that, friend. Jesus didn't come to earth, live, and die, and, and rise from the grave to simply deal with the fallout of your sins or to mitigate the undesirable consequences of your sins, or to keep your sins from having an adverse effect on your eternal destiny, okay? He came to take away your sins. What what did John the Baptist say? First thing he said when he saw Jesus walking toward him, what did he say? 
John 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God. Who what? Who takes away the sins of the world. How does that happen? Well, 1 Peter 2, 24 tells us. Jesus, he himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Okay, so when you become a Christian, when you come to Christ, friend, you are healed in two senses, all right? First, Jesus takes away the guilt of your sin. Praise God for that. He delivers us from condemnation in the courtroom of heaven. But he heals us in a second sense. Number two, he takes away the tyrannical power of your sin. He delivers you from slavery to the passions and desires of your flesh. He takes away your sin in both senses. So think about this. If you acquired a deadly disease by eating poisoned food or drinking unclean water and after weeks in the hospital, your body was finally delivered from that sickness. Would you go back and open your refrigerator and dig out that food that made you sick and just start nibbling on it? Or would you go back and and find that unclean water and and get an empty milk jug and, and save a whole gallon of it so that from time to time you could You could just have a a sip or two. You wouldn't do that, right? No, you wouldn't do that. You'd go back in the fridge. You might throw the whole fridge out. I don't know. You'd find that water source and you'd call everybody who knows anything about it and, and you'd get it gone. Get rid of it. It made me sick. It almost killed me. You'd stay as far away from that food and water as you possibly could. What's the point? Friend, don't seek out and bring back home the sin that Jesus died to take away from you. Don't do that. Practicing righteousness is a necessary part of salvation because of the sanctifying goal of the gospel. Jesus died to take away your sins. That's the first reason. Number two, Look back at verse 5. Number 2, why is practicing righteousness a necessary part of our salvation? Because of the sinless perfection of our Savior. Verse 5, you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. If the first motivation to holiness is based on what Jesus did, the second motivation is based on who Jesus is. Okay, so think about this. Think about this. Jesus' actions, sinless. Jesus' attitudes, sinless. Jesus' nature, sinless. His eternal character, his essential nature, has always been perfectly righteous and could not be more righteous It's it's why the biblical authors, whenever they they receive a vision of the ascended Christ in the New Testament, they always record that vision with this language of blinding splendor because he's perfectly righteous. Revelation 1, 
He, Jesus, was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Friend, when you become a Christian, when, when God works a miracle and unites you through faith to Christ, such that his life, his death, his resurrection become your life, your death, your resurrection. Do you realize the one in whom you are called to abide? Who is he? What's the Lord of hosts whose face is like the sun shining in full strength? In him, there is no sin. No sin. What what does that mean for us? What means verse six? Look there. That no one who abides in him, in that one, keeps on sinning. Why? Because no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Why not? Well, because we inevitably become like the company we keep. (laughs) Right? That's true in a physical sense. That is far more true in our spiritual life. Abiding in sin and abiding in Christ are incompatible. You can't live at peace with sin and simultaneously live at peace with a sinless Savior. They are polar opposites. And by the way, that's just as true for a single act of sin as it is for a persistent pattern of sin. What do I mean by that? Well, well, I think the New American Standard translation is really helpful here. It brings out the force of what John's saying. The sense in which the sinlessness of our Savior makes practicing righteousness absolutely necessary. What's the NAS say here? No one who abides in him sins. It's not limited to a pattern. No one who sins, has seen him, or knows him. Why do I think that's helpful? Well, Because it, it reminds us that, that we must not think, we must not think that somehow occasional acts of sin are consistent with abiding in Christ, while it's just this persistent pattern of sin that's not. That's false. Okay, sin is always incompatible with abiding in Christ. Now, 1 John 1, 8 has not stopped being true. What's that say? If we say we have no sin, we what? We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Well, what's John reminding us back there in chapter 1? That until Jesus returns, none of us will ever be free from sin. But please listen, friend. It is oh so easy to seize upon that reality. What's the reality? Nobody's perfect as a convenient way of excusing or minimizing the seriousness of sin. That's a fatal mistake. 
And if you tell yourself that, that somehow you can toy with sin or flirt with sin or take it out for a spin or practice it and at the same time enjoy the salvation that is reserved for those who abide in Christ, you are deceived. They don't go together. They're incompatible. I love how John Stott says this so helpfully. Listen, a Christian may sin sometimes, even with the consent of the mind and the will. But he's overwhelmed by grief and repentance afterward. For the whole direction of his life is toward God and holiness. His mind is set on the Spirit and on the things above, not on earthly things. His eyes are ever focused on the Lord, whom he always sets before him. His eyes are fixed on all God's commands. I love how Alfred Plummer summarizes the point when he says, Although the believer sometimes sins, yet not sin, but opposition to sin, is the ruling principle of his life. Friends, there is no better indicator of the authenticity of your faith than whether you are practicing righteousness. Heed the Lord's warning here. And if necessary, where necessary, repent. No one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning in the present can claim in the past to have seen him or known him. Practicing righteousness is a necessary part of our salvation. Reason number two, because of the sinless perfection of our Savior. Number three, why is it necessary? Because of the visible nature of righteousness. The visible nature of righteousness. Look at verse seven. Look at verse seven. John's warning us here to not be deceived He helps us avoid deception by laying down what I will call an infallible principle. What's the principle? Quote, whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. You know, we hear that and we think, well, well, duh. (laughs) But I would argue that the point is so obvious here that, that you actually can miss it. What's the point? That genuine righteousness or right standing with God is always visible. It's visible, okay? Until Jesus returns and and he separates those who are genuinely his followers from those who are not, it can seem difficult to know whether or not someone has been justified, whether or not they've been declared right or made right in the sight of God through faith in Christ. You You know, if somebody says they're a Christian, if they say they love the Lord, it's like, well, well, who am I to conclude otherwise? And certainly in the final analysis, only God knows the condition of every human heart. By the way, that includes your own. (laughs) But we have a reliable means here. You have a reliable means by which you can discern those who are righteous from those who are not. Those who have right standing with God from those who do not. What's the tool? What's the question? Do they practice righteousness? Do they practice it? In other words, there's no such thing as righteousness unaccompanied by obedience. They're inseparable. If you don't 
practice righteousness, if you're, if you're tolerating or, or making peace with sin in your life, then this we know. You're not righteous in Christ. You're not a Christian. But if you are practicing righteousness, if you're fighting to, to live in faithful obedience to the word of God, then you can be confident of what? That you are righteous in the sight of God. Hear this. You are righteous in the sight of God, not because your good works earned his acceptance, but because the righteousness he freely grants you as a gift through faith in Christ is necessarily a visible righteousness. It shows itself. It it proves itself. It demonstrates itself in lifelong works of obedience. There's no such thing as a Christian who's right with God, but living like the world. That's impossible. Practicing righteousness is a necessary part of our salvation because of the visible nature of righteousness. That's number three. Here's number four. Why is it necessary? Look at verse eight. It's necessary because of the diabolical origin of sin. Diabolical origin of sin. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. You may remember earlier that I said that, that we live in a moral universe. We don't just live in a moral universe. We live in a cosmic conflict. Okay? We live in a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. What does that mean? That means that the existence of the devil is not, is not an imaginary personification of human evil or a convenient way of avoiding responsibility for my sin. The devil made me do it. No, the devil is the ultimate explanation for the presence of evil in the world. That's what he is. And and it's his face, it's his voice, the same face and voice that that tempted Adam and Eve to disobey, sin against God in the Garden of Eden. It's his face, his voice that lurks behind, that's hidden behind every enemy in this life, every temptation, every sin. He's, He's lurking behind that. Because he despises the glory of God. And because he despises the glory of God, he hates all of those, all of you, who bear God's image. And he desires nothing more than to destroy your soul. So so here's what that means. If you make a practice of sinning, which by the way, includes respectable sins, Socially respectable sins like like anxiety or discontentment or or selfishness or impatience or anger, jealousy, then you're not just failing to obey God. Dare I say, you're not even just practicing lawlessness. You're aligning yourself with the works and effects of Satan. So your friends may say, dude, it's It's only human. I mean, come on. You're in high school. Cut yourself some slack. God says, that's demonic. That's that's demonic. If you practice sin, you are practicing, you are embracing, you are holding close to you what finds its origin in Satan 
himself. Okay, why, why is practicing righteousness necessary? Well, number four, because of a diabolical origin of all sin. Reason number five. Look back at verse eight. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning, and the reason the Son of God appeared was what? To destroy the works of the devil. Destroy the works of the devil, okay? Translation here. We don't just flee sin and practice righteousness because sin is of the devil. We flee sin and practice righteousness because Jesus came to take out his works and effects. So remember, what what is the devil trying to do? He's trying to destroy you because you bear the image of God. So what does he do? Well, he assaults your soul. He tempts you to to rationalize and practice sin so that you can be condemned to death. He assaults your body. He he inflicts you with diseases that that call you, tempt you to, to reject or abandon the hope of faith in Christ. And he assaults your mind by by planting seeds of falsehood and and lies about who you are and who God is that that will keep you as far away as possible from the truth and implications of the gospel. That's what the devil does. We know what Jesus has done in response. Christian, he has destroyed the power of Satan's works and effects on all three of those fronts. All of them. Listen. Listen. Jesus has delivered you, if you're a Christian, from condemnation and set you free to obey the Father by giving you a new heart that wants to obey and the gift of the Holy Spirit that empowers you to obey. He secured a coming day when you'll be free from every disease and disability. A deliverance that, that we experience and taste in part when we are healed in this life. And Jesus has opened your mind, if you're a Christian, to understand what is true. How? By enabling you to have a relationship with the one who is truth itself. And showing you how to see everything else in this world in light of him. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, Jesus has destroyed the one who would otherwise destroy you. That's what he's done for you if you're in Christ. And to ignore that deliverance. This is where John brings application. To ignore that deliverance, to pretend as if that all that never happened, Jesus never did that, and, and go back to the sin that once enslaved you, Christian. To do that is to deny the emancipating power of God in your life. So what's the fifth reason? What's the emancipating power of the gospel? Namely, that through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus came and has delivered, he's emancipated, he's freed you from the works and effects of the evil one. So why would you go back and let him put chains on you again? Why would you run back to the thing that enslaved you and brought death to you? 
Jesus freed you from that. You're, you're free in Christ. Why would you go back? That's what John's saying. Practicing righteousness is a necessary part of our salvation because it's the fruit of the, the emancipating power of the gospel. Number six, why is it necessary? Because of the purifying principle of the new birth. Each one of these is, is just like a blow of a hammer. One after another, just driving the nail of, of truth into our hearts that your obedience is necessary. It matters. Number six, the purifying principle of the new birth. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. John, John reaches back here to a point that he made earlier that, that I talked about last Sunday. We saw in 1 John 2, 28 that, that when you become a Christian, the moment that happens, God imparts a new principle of spiritual life into you. He regenerates you. He makes you alive. He gives you a heart that, that's able to repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Jesus describes that in John chapter 3, the gospel of John chapter 3, as being born again. And what John is saying here in verse 9, friend, is that when you are born again, that has a radical effect on the way you live. Look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. Listen, and he cannot keep on sinning. Feel the force of that. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So back in verse 6, John argued that practicing sin is incompatible with abiding in Christ. Well, his argument in verse 9 is that practicing sin is impossible if you've been born of God. Why? Why? Because the spiritual seed that, that God has planted, the seed of the truth of his word, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and every Christian, that seed necessarily and inevitably expresses itself, grows into a life of obedience. So for those of you who like to garden like I do, it's real simple, okay? Real simple. In the same way that it's impossible for a cucumber plant to grow from a tomato seed. That's impossible. You will never find a cucumber plant ever that has grown from a tomato seed. So too, it's impossible for a practice of sin to grow out of a heart that's been made alive to God in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And then what happened? And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You can't separate those things. You can't separate a genuine new birth from a life of obedience. Those who are born of God will obey God. Obedience is a necessary part of salvation because of the purifying principle of the new birth. Here's the last reason, number seven. Look at verse 10. John declares, by this it is what? Evident. By this it is evident. Who are the children of God? And who are the children of the devil? What's he saying? 
Well, he's reminding you, friend, that even if you like to think that your spiritual life, your spiritual condition is private and hidden, God says it's not. It's not. Why? Because there's something in your life, if you're a Christian, that cannot be hidden and inevitably exposes your spiritual parentage. Whether the devil is your father or whether God is your father. Now, we have to speak very carefully here because there's a lot of confusion on this point, okay? We are not all children of God. We're not. We're all created by God and as such we are all accountable to him. We belong to him, but we're not born children of God. We're not born able to call God our father. We're born sinners. We're born enslaved to doing what we want to do, not what God wants us to do. We don't naturally reflect the nature of a God who loves righteousness and and hates wickedness. We naturally reflect the nature of the evil one who loves wickedness and hates righteousness. And so in that sense, offend our pride it does, but John is entirely justified in saying that if the practice of sin marks your life, then in a spiritual sense, you're a child of the devil. You're living out his nature. But, but what happens when we are saved, when we repent of our sins and, and come to Christ? Well, John reminds us here that, as we saw last Sunday, God adopts us as his children. There's a spiritual miracle that takes place that is similar to what we see in the physical realm all the time when kids are born and grow up. Okay, so let me illustrate this. What do I mean here? By practicing righteousness is necessary because of this unmistakable evidence of adoption. That's the seventh reason. Well, here's what I mean. When people look at me, and then they look at my oldest son, Ethan, you know what they say? Man, that is so obviously your kid. Why do they say that? Well, I mean, many people know I'm his dad, but but ultimately they have grounds to say that because the same DNA that's in my body is where? It's in his body. It's one of the reasons that I, I know he's my son. And he knows I'm his dad. We look alike, so there's resemblance physically. We both have blue eyes and and brown hair and we're thin as a rail. (laughs) No matter how much we eat. And truth be told, (laughs) oh, it's a, some ways it's a curse, mercy. That's why I'm always chugging juice up here. But it's also true in our our personality, right? In the way we live. So the older Ethan gets, you know, what do What do I see in his skills and abilities? Well, surprise, surprise, he loves to read. He loves to solve math problems. He loves to have conversation. He loves to play the piano, and he loves to lead anyone who is willing to follow him. (laughs) At least he just loves to remind me all this, like, we know where all that came from. You're not shocked, right? I mean, I hope you're not shocked because we expect that. I'm his dad. He's my son. We're not shocked by the similarity because inevitably the nature of his parentage will be reflected in the pattern of his life. 
Friends, the same thing is true in a spiritual sense. This is why this seventh reason that practicing righteousness is absolutely necessary for you to be saved is so true. So true. If you are a genuine child of God, people will be able to tell. They'll be able to tell, just like they can tell that Ethan is my son. It'll be evident to you and them that something's changed, that you don't look like the world. You don't talk like the world. You don't live for what the world lives for. You live and look like your older brother, Jesus, who's always seeking to please his Father in heaven. In a word, the trait of adoption is practicing righteousness. Fleeing sin, practicing righteousness, it's absolutely necessary if you are to attain the hope of heaven because of the unmistakable trait of adoption. To conclude, I'd simply say this. If you're a Christian, God wants you to fight legalism. He wants you to fight the persistent lifelong temptation to try to earn acceptance and love from God through obedience to God. But friend, there is something he wants you to fight for far harder than you fight against legalism. You must fight, 1 John 3, verse 3, to purify yourself as he is pure, to practice righteousness. It's not optional. Unless you choose to obey, you won't be saved. I I don't want any of you to get to the final day having sat under, Lord willing, decades of my preaching and hear those devastating words from the Lord. I never knew you. I want you to persevere in the faith. I want you to persevere in the faith which means you have to obey the Lord. It's not advisable. It's not helpful. It's absolutely necessary. It's necessary. Why? Because of the sanctifying goal of the gospel, the sinless perfection of our Savior, the visible nature of righteousness, the diabolical origin of sin, the emancipating power of the gospel, the purifying principle of the new birth, and because it's the unmistakable trait of our adoption. In other words, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. God's given you all you need. All those promises, all those truths are sources of power, spiritual power, to do what he made you to do, to live out your new birth by practicing righteousness. The power you need to do that, friend, doesn't come from within you. It comes from what Jesus has done for you. But obey you must because of Titus 2.14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It doesn't matter if you were zealous yesterday or if you have plans to be zealous tomorrow. What matters is, are you zealous for good works today? If you're not, you need to repent. And if you are, you need to persevere because attaining the hope of heaven depends on it. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, this is a, in many ways, it's a heavy word. It's like a hammer. It, it comes in hard. And it hurts. Because it confronts us in our practice of sin. And warns us that we have to obey. Father, I pray that wherever we have thought that because you're a God of love or somehow because of Jesus or somehow because of what grace is that, that our obedience is not absolutely necessary for our salvation on the final day, I pray you would change our minds. Would you grant sight, open our hearts, Lord, that we would not create a wedge between the grace that saves and the grace that sanctifies. Lord Jesus, you know how easy it is to just run around in person and on the internet screaming about legalists. I pray that the sheep in this flock would be far more concerned far more earnest and far more devoted to chasing righteousness. And that through our practice of righteousness, our assurance of salvation would grow and deepen. And that with every act of righteousness, we would turn around with the heart of amazement and gratitude at the grace of God that made that practice possible. And breathe strength under the wings of our obedience. That we might live for you. And look like you. And one day spend eternity before you. Grant us the grace of persevering faith. And give us strength for the necessity of good works. I pray in your son's name. Amen.